Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to episode four of Politics as Usual. This week, my guest is David Halpern, who is the head of the Behavioural Insights team, or Nudge Unit, based in London. As you'll hear from our conversation, we talk about the work of the Behavioural Insights team and how they're drawing on the fields of behavioural economics and psychology to try and get a better understanding of what motivates human beings to behave in certain ways in certain situations in order to create much more effective public policy. They started from very small beginnings around seven years ago inside the Cabinet Office in the UK, but have now grown to employ around 100 staff in London and also have offices in Australia and America. And their work is influencing the thinking and the policy of governments right around the world. For those of you in the UK, you'll be familiar with recent changes to the enrolment for pension schemes, for example. As David points out in this interview, the government had invested huge amounts of money over many years trying to entice people to save more for their pensions to almost no effect. And not only was it a very costly policy, but it was almost entirely ineffective. This change, which obliges you now to automatically enrol for a pension scheme, but gives you the option to opt out, is the opposite. It's relatively low cost, but its effect has been dramatic on rates of saving for pensions. And we talk about this approach to policy making and how some of these ideas have developed over the course of the last 10 years, particularly since the publication of the book Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein in 2008. Now, it might seem there's a, a bit of a gap between the work of the Behavioural Insights team and the content of Politics as Usual as a podcast. However, all of this work has a direct bearing on how international assistance towards improving governance around the world is also undertaken. The Behavioural Insights team itself is now starting to do some very interesting work looking at the drivers of corruption in different parts of the world and how behavioural economics might alter some of those incentives and reduce levels of corruption. But there are two things in particular which I wanted to talk to David about in relation to the overlap between our sort of work, uh, the sort of work that we do at Global Partners Governance and the work of the Behavioural Insights team. The first is his other role as the the government's national What Works advisors, which is a strange title, and I ask him about this. But it's essentially trying to use evidence as the basis for policy rather than simply going on a hunch. And it's remarkable still how much government policy, not just in the UK, but in many, many countries, is based on very, very little evidence. However, in order to get that evidence, you need to experiment and you need to fail. And we talk about how in, in the public sector, the idea of failure is still one which is, is absolutely frowned upon. But as we talk about, and as many, many authors have pointed out in, in books over the last few years, the most effective way of finding solutions is to try and to fail, to iterate, to improve. And we talk a bit about that. The other thing is what David described in his book about the Nudge Unit, which is called Inside the Nudge Unit, which was published in the, in the last year or so, is what he calls radical incrementalism, or what, as a cycling fan, I know is marginal gains, because this is what underpinned British cycling's success over the last um, 15, 20 years. Essentially, this means getting the small things right not just focusing on the big picture, but trying to understand the minutiae of change and how 
um, an agglomeration, an accumulation of small changes can result in much, much bigger changes. And this has underpinned a lot of our approach at GPG over the last 10 years, that idea of getting the small things right, of thinking big but acting small. And David talks at length about some of this stuff. The other thing that emerges from this conversation is David's insatiable curiosity, a desire to try and understand why the world is the way that it is and what we might do about it. And I think that approach, in fact, everything that the Behavioural Insights team does. David is by background an academic, but an academic who has always sought practical solutions to intractable problems. I've known him for around 15 years since he was in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and even there looking for innovative ways of tackling long-standing problems. Since then he set up the Institute for Government and then went on to set up the Behavioural Insights team and as I mentioned is advising the government on this idea of what works, how do we get evidence-based policy making. I should also give you some context in that we started talking and only after a while did I realise we were in the middle of an interview and we did the interview towards the end of last year in the Behavioural Insights team's offices in London and we started talking about just why people would want to work there in the first place. And as he puts it at the beginning of the interview, why do you have to choose? Why should you have to choose to be an academic or a politico? And this, I think, is one of the most interesting things during the conversation and one of the things which makes David himself most interesting. So that is the interview. So much more than Whitehall. Yeah. Probably because our work is now increasingly international. But quite often you're out there and people are just chatting away at some other language. Um, you know, just because, I don't know, just the other day, the two of them were talking, jabbering away in French, neither of whom I know happened to be French. One from Finland and one, I think, from Germany. And they decided they would enjoy a conversation and were jabbering away. Um, but why do they come here? Why, do they, why are they attracted by this organisation? Well, I think it's a particular hybrid, you know, so we are social impact. We, it's a combination of, um, why do you have to choose? Why do you have to choose between being um, uh, going down the academic route um, or going down a policy route or something a bit more entrepreneurial? And in BIT, you don't have to choose. But also, that's not coincidence because we think we have found that's a very powerful combination to figure out and bring in some different approaches on policy and the world. Is it, does that describe you? Is that why? Sorry, we started the interview now. Um, but that, that, that mix, I was saying earlier. Yeah, that, I suppose so. That it's, it's, I was try, when I stopped being a special advisor, I was trying to work out what to do next, realised the job didn't exist and would have to invent it myself. And it sounds like you're doing something similar. Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, uh, I mean, I think it wasn't done with that in mind, but um, it's true that um, it tends to look fine. I have experienced those same dilemmas, and it's annoying to have to, to choose. Why should you have to choose? We should have institutions that blend those kinds of approaches. Um, not only BIT, but also other institutions that are bridge institutions. So the What Works centres are also have some of those same characteristics. So why should you have to choose between being an academic researcher on education? versus being a practitioner, versus being a policymaker. Yeah. Why can't you bring together the most best elements of those because you want them to be mixed together, right, to do something different, better. 
And one of the tests, I think, of some of these institutions is, are they attracting some of the best people that would have gone into one of those strands? Because that's actually the kind of blended institution you need to be in. Yeah. Uh, and they do produce different kinds of things. And otherwise, we always talk about, you know, these great gulfs and the bridge between particularly the academic and the policy world. Well, rather than build the bridge, you just build a new kind of institution, which is, you know, they are bridge institutions, of course, institutions, but, yeah. What, I mean, I mean, we've known each other for a long time. Um, yeah. And I remember <laughs> seeing you in 2010, just as this was starting, with you and sort of three other people. And now you've got... Um, office with a hundred people in it and you know offices in New York and Sydney um, mm. how how did this come about how did how, how did it start because I don't think I've ever asked you that before yeah okay um well um some of this is discussed but in the inside the nudge unit but um look you've got a new government coming in there was a sense already that there were some new approaches that were worth blending together in relation to behavioral insights team so bringing a more realistic model of human behavior we did have an attempt to do so a decade ago, more than a decade now, when in the strategy unit we wrote a paper which I led on behaviour change and it went wrong badly politically in terms of how it got picked up. Um, what happened so, Remind me. Yeah, we did this paper, we did produce it. It was called something like uh, Personal Responsibility and Behaviour Change because those things were entwined in the political narrative at the time. It was the way through. Um, it had a one-line reference to... Um, using price instruments to affect human behaviour. Why not, right? Mm. Um, but in relation to it, it makes a mention of... This um, is like sort of the minimum price for alcohol and stuff like that. Yeah, so that wasn't discussed at that time, but it was in fact in relation to... It basically, it was a passing reference to using um, price signals where they change behaviour around eating food if they worked elsewhere. Like, where do they work, where do they not? So they work in terms of driving substitution away from leaded fuel. So why wouldn't they work in relation to healthier foods? Mm. Um, and this ended up on the front page um, of the Times with a big pork pie saying PM strategy unit proposes fat tax. And um, partly because of the politics at the time you had a centre-left administration with Tony, which was generally pushing the parameters of the state to be legislate more, do more, spend more, and now you want to do this stuff as well. It just hit a big reaction back. Um, so anyway... Um, it wasn't. It was never possible. But anyway, two thousand ten. Interesting. You got a centre right government, which arguably is a better place to handle it. Weirdly. Plus, um, I mean, for me, I was also coming back. You mentioned the hidden wealth of nations. There were other things. When you get a new administration, you have that period where the system is disrupted, um, as I guess with new institutions. No one's quite sure what you'll do, and they might. You know, there's this wriggle room for a period to do something different, and to break out of a kind of mental rigidity. So uh, one of those was the opportunity to do behaviour change. As it happens, it wasn't the only one. It was also, I came back to help on big society um, and in the PM's interest on uh, well-being, which had a sort of interrelationship between. Um, I mean, no one would have guessed at that time, given the addition, so much more resources were on the big society side, but it got into political difficulty, whereas the behavioural insight work was a surprise success. It also embodied an interesting institutional design point, which was... Um, the creation of a skunk work style operation, so deliberately in the centre, well, with number 10. Um, of skunk, a, work. skunk work. Skunk work, as in this is the in institutional, skunk works came from the Lockheed Martin decision, that's what it's referred to. Um, now, anyway, um, Lockheed Martin, as often have big organisations, felt that their designers kept coming up with a certain set of things, and yeah. even though they're not aware of it, they've got a set of tacit assumptions, which mean they keep designing planes to be a certain way. 
So one response to that is you create a separate unit of people who you just say, come up with something different, right. crazy, whatever, disrupt us. So it was called the Skunk Works because it was at the far end of the runway right. where it stunk, it literally stunk of skunks. <laughs> and so you had this team of people deliberately to come up with some alternative models. So they came up with a Blackbird, they came up with a whole series of now very famous aircraft designs which were different from the rest of Lockheed. So the point is sometimes when you've got a set of institutions but also mental rigidities where you're locked down a certain paradigm, you want to disrupt them in some way. So it was overtly the case with BIT was created to be a skunk work type operation which would disrupt policy thinking and introduce some different thoughts about how you might do things into government. But whose initiative was it? Whose, whose idea was it? Was it an idea that you had, or was it, did it come from... So it 10? came from several routes, and they came together, um, as these things sometimes do. So we um, had... Um, uh, I mean, I'd had various conversations with Gus, who was then the Cabinet Secretary before the 2010 election, about, wasn't it time to revisit this? Um, Washington had dabbled with it, because Cass Sunstein, after the publication of the book Nudge, oh. had been brought in by Obama to... Uh, in, in OMB in that case um, to introduce some of those thoughts into the Washington context so that also stimulated it um, so you had very you know so Gus was interested organisationally we then from IFG wrote the report Mindspace which was deliberately co-sponsored by Cabinet Office so it was IFG and Cabinet Office partly just to draw Cabinet Office in so that was externally stimulated but also with internal support but then what beautifully came along is that you had Cameron's um, political advisors, particularly Steve Hilton and Rowan Silver, who had just done a kind of tour across the US and they'd seen some of the, or picked up on some of the work on Nudge as well as Cass coming into the yeah. White House. So they also had a political interest in disrupting and introducing this new model. So you had the beautiful coming together of, well, yes, there was some external pressure on it from the academic world and IFG, but also you, inside the administration there was some sympathy, at least from Cabinet Secretary. And it came together with a political narrative at that time. So those things all came together about, so let's create a small operation inside yeah. uh, number 10. There was plenty of resistance in the system too, but we had a big advantage by having political and administrative support, as well as a genuine, I think, fresh sort of intellectual current to mine. Um, and these came together in the BIT. And the Nudge book, the Thaler and Sunstein was 2008. 2008. And that sort of, for you know, people listening to this, it, it, that, that whole idea of trying to nudge people towards certain patterns of behaviour um, without necessarily having to use a heavy-handed legislation or forcing them into different... Uh, exactly. So you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the basic idea on nudging, although we've gone broader than nudging, but it might be worth returning to, but... Um, yeah, the 2008 book, which was originally going to be called Libertarian Paternalism, based on an earlier paper, yeah. which is precisely in that point, that you could um, essentially adjust choice architecture, lead people with choices, but try and set the default to be a healthier or a better one. So the canonical example became on pensions, 401k. Um, why have it so it's effortful that you have to opt in? Why don't you leave people a choice, but make it that you opt out rather than opt in? So you're using inertia in favour of what people sort of want to do anyway, which is save more. Um, interestingly, um, I think it's not a coincidence that Cass and Richard, Richard Thaler, are themselves crossover. So they're not psychologists essentially tapping into a psychological literature. Mm -hmm. I think it's often the case. 
one's an economist, one's a lawyer, realizing there's something value added in this perspective and bringing it um, to a wider audience. Um, so, uh, and then of course, Cass, you know, they had a good relationship with um, a barmer, as these things often are, they're greatly helped by having an actual connection. Yeah. And hence Cass coming into the White House brought it in. Now we actually ended up di- diverging over a couple of years from the, uh, the, the US original variant on, on Nudge in, in a couple of ways. One is that that's quite a North American view on it, which is what that North because it's the, the language is often used choice enhancing. So you drew the contrast to regulation or a price incentive. Mm-hmm. So it's that um, regulation normally tells you you've got to do this or a price gives you a hard in, you know, incentive. Whereas this stuff was supposed to be choice enhancing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't take away a choice from you you still got, you know, the default leaves you the option to go the other way. Or if you change the yeah. salad bar and put it before the chips in the canteen, you still got the choice of walking past the salad. It, it enhances, or at least does not remove your choices, in contrast to how regulation is sometimes seen to do that. Mm. And that's rooted, I think, remember, in a, in a US context where people don't really trust government or want it to do more. Mm. Um, so we, um, we, in fact, have done something broader, which is we're using behavioural science much more broadly than just nudges. So some people would say an incentive, a financial incentive is definitely not a nudge, whereas we're deeply interested in making financial incentives designed to be more effective, right, if you see what I mean. So the sugar tax, which we've introduced, um, or introducing, sorry, it's not there yet, but it's very much designed with an eye to behavioural science and affecting the behaviour of of consumers, but also driving behavioural change by producers and retailers essentially to drive reformulation. Okay. So that wouldn't be considered a classic nudge, but it draws very heavily on behavioural science. The other difference and divergence from the Washington 2009-2008 nudge position from us and increasing other governments is that we did something very different to them. So um, we've brought into it a very, very experimental approach. So when CAS was there, essentially the primary instrument was executive orders. And CAS, incredibly brilliant guy or whatever, but um, I think we, we had more hum, you know, humility, if you like. Um, in some ways it was a, a humbler approach. So um, often rather than saying we're going to change the regulation, do an executive order, everybody now has to reduce their paperwork or whatever, we said, why don't we try variations in approach using behavioural science, yeah. the so-called radical incrementalism, mm-hmm test these variations, see which ones work better, um, and sort of go from there. So on the one hand, it's less dramatic than an executive order from the president saying everyone's got to do this. But for us, it was premised in a sort of deep uncertainty of human beings are really complicated. You have to test and keep testing and trialing. So interestingly, now the White House has rebooted its own model um, in terms of they've now essentially replicated a similar team to the one that we originally had in the UK. I mean, is that a different part of the reason for your success? Because you, you do seem to have expanded. the stuff in the, the White House you don't really hear about that much. But it sounds like you're spending an awful lot of time experimenting. And, fa- and you must be failing as well, and learning yeah. and developing and iterating, which, from what you've described, doesn't sound like it. that was the, the Washington approach to this. It wasn't originally. It is has become much more so. Um, so they are under, under particularly Maya Shankar, who's been there under the sort of science team um, in the White House, rather than the OPM. Mm. Um, 
OMB, sorry. Um, but that whole notion, I, I, I'm so, yeah. by all these people you've got in, the, in this office experimenting and failing a lot of the time. Yeah, I'd say um, in round numbers, probably about two in ten trials or arms that are run turn out not to work. Right. And that's super interesting. Um, like you don't only want to know what works, you also know what doesn't work. This is a lesson that applies, of course, much more widely than behavioural science alone. Um, as you know, partly why I serve ministers now as national advisor on what works. Yeah, can I it's, ask, what, what is that job? <laughs> kind of what it says on the can, really. So rather than introducing legislation and having big arguments or whatever, introducing policy, where what happens is, I mean, humans are in general overconfident. Um, so we think these things will work. We tell ourselves these stories. But passing a law, you've made many, many choices along the way, designing a welfare system, etc., why are you so damn sure that your solution that you worked out having conversations and arguments in Parliament or wherever yeah. was the best solution? It might be. That's a pretty heroic assumption. As opposed to, um, well, what are all the, you know, 100 alternative options that you left on the shelf we decided not to pursue? Chances are some of those were better. Um, but beyond that, a lot of uh, the actual operation of public services and indeed much of life... Um, aren't things that are decided in Parliament. They're all the decisions that are made by a teacher or a doctor or a police, you know, as to whether they arrest or don't arrest. Or um, I remember years ago, a phrase that almost captures it for me, um, that back in the strategy unit days, we did this interviews with lots of, you know, the cabinet and whatever. Anyway, this guy was running prisons and he said, I remember him leaning across at one point saying, David, you know, there's a thousand different ways of shutting a prison door, right? You know, a cell door. Mm. And you sort of know what he means, right, about the attitude that you're conveying with it, respect, dignity, or with hostility. It's really hard to pass a law to capture all these myriad of possibilities, and yet they are absolutely critical for our outcomes in, a, in so many ways. So the idea is essentially, yes, um, create a set of independent institutions that are perpetually examining the evidence and ideally actively experimenting to figure out, well, what is the best way of teaching maths? What is the best way a head teacher can use their resources, both financial and time and all the rest, in order to make it much more likely the kid will come out being able to read and write and do all the other kinds of things you hope for? Um, so it, it actually is a, it's a very radical, in my view, history will probably say even more radical than the introduction of a more realistic model of human behaviour, is this kind of very strong form of empiricism and the humility that is implied with it. But you must, uh, I mean, you must, I think these examples may have been in your book. They were certainly in a book that I read recently. Um, actually, it may have been Matthew Syed's book on Black yeah, Box yeah, Thinking. Yeah, very similar. Um, where he talks in there about the, in so many areas of life, we do not have any data. And the absence of data, narrative is the best we've got. And that narrative is often really strong. It's so yeah. compelling. So you must spend a lot of time trying to persuade senior politicians, policy makers who are used to doing things in a certain way that actually this just does not stand up. But that must be a difficult, complex, arduous, time-consuming task. Yeah, it is, and there's a lot of time spent for it, so that's why I play a role partly championing this. This is partly also why we create these institutions that are independent to keep driving it forward. Um, so, uh, But you're right, there is a very big step in there. I mean, to me, the biggest one of all is it's a hard thing to acknowledge that you don't know. Yeah. You don't know the answer. I mean, that is the essence of the scientific method, is the acknowledgement of ignorance, you know, essentially. Um, the embracing of doubt. 
that's not what most incentives are on politicians who have to stand there very confidently and say, this is the answer, I'm going to lead well, you out of the wilderness. Have you, have you ever seen a politician um, define a problem in the public sphere and then say, I don't know, I've discovered this problem, but I don't know what to do about it? There's no incentive at all for a politician to define an issue unless they have a plan of action for dealing with it. Yeah, so which is partly why we create these institutions at one arm's length. But it is also true that there are some politicians who are starting to develop that narrative and to be able to say, we're going to move forward on welfare reform. This is a real example right in the UK. The um, very impressive minister who's looked after it a long time, Lord Freud, precisely gets this point. So when the legislation was laid, not only does it move forward these quite radical reforms, it also has embedded in it not only the, um, the capacity, but the expectation that there will be ongoing experimentation about figuring out multiple variations within inside that envelope of the welfare reform. Um, and that's a, you know, just a hugely um, powerful process because now you've created an engine to keep improving year in, year out, tuning and adjusting and improving. You know, that's how we get these massive in, um, improvements in healthcare. It wasn't because of some grand plan. It was because people have literally run hundreds of thousands of experiments in healthcare in relation to at least the pharmaceutical end which have, have worked out, you know, drug combinations, etc., um, dosage levels that have gradually led to improvement that people really do live longer as a consequence. Well, if that works in healthcare, why in hell wouldn't it work in relation to criminal justice, education, all these other areas, economic growth? Well, I think the answer is we are now starting to see it absolutely can apply in those other areas. Um, but still, you're left with the issue of that might logically be the case, but and there are countervailing arguments. So... Many people would say, well, it's unfair to treat people differently, you know, so in that sense, an experiment is a very different logic. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you don't use these more empirical methods, you'll never be able to figure out um, what doesn't, doesn't work. But it's also incumbent on us to try and build a sort of sense of both public recognition as well as an understanding on the part of our political elites, both, polit- you know, political action and the civil service, to understand how they can use these techniques and why it's worth doing so. So it's it's yeah, it's a big project, very big project. But in terms of, I mean, going back to that point about experimenting and failing and iterating, it's. I mean, there is so much evidence that the, the only way to find out how to new, do new things is to fail and to to improve. Mm-hmm. But in all of our experience, and certainly in the areas in which we work in um, the international field, there is a constant concern for value for money, and. They do not want to, you know, in quotes, waste taxpayers' money on these experiments because they should be, you know, we should be actually using this money more effectively. And it's it, the, the argument, you can see immediately how wrong-headed the argument is, but yeah. it's a difficult thing to do, to persuade public servants, politicians, that it is worth experimenting. Yeah, so the place we started with, and increasingly where we help other governments too, is to... Look, you're not going to start with your absolute fundamental things. You know, you, things you believe are going to carry on, you're passionate, you come, you know, they're sort of rock solid in your beliefs, rightly or wrongly, about you're going to introduce a reform programme. But you try and say, well, what are those things around the margins where you're not so sure, right? So, and that can be really simple operational things. So we've started here and in many other countries now start with tax issues. So our revenue service sends out 50 to 70 million letters a year. Some would do more than that, by the way. Well, why do we think that's the most effective letter? You know, you could word it in a hundred different ways. Mm. So, um, 
so you start saying, well, okay, that's fair enough, a good point, we can't be sure of that. And frankly, we don't care that much about it, but if you can show that some variation is more effective, then so be it. Um, and of course, that's exactly what we find. You, you run these variations and you find, actually, this is much, much more effective, this variant than another, and that's pretty neat. You're also starting to infect the system with a different logic. Well, if it works to introduce variations around these tax letters, well, why not about a myriad of other things. So it gradually spreads, like you would do in other areas. You start to build that understanding capacity, albeit in an island, first of all. But the kind of logic of it starts to spread. So you don't try and persuade people to become more empirical in a kind of theoretical basis. You start with some practical examples. They see why it's powerful, and it starts raising the question of, well, if here not, then then why not somewhere else, right? Yeah. In your book, using those small examples, you talk about, I think it was tax letters or speeding fines, and how what's most likely, the, the, the rate of pay payment for, um, I think, speeding fines is, I can't remember what the figure was, but it was, it was relatively low. And you experimented with different ways of writing the letter, one which was to name the, the driver, dear Mr. So-and-so, yeah. and then... But I think if you included a photo of the car actually speeding at the time... Yeah, it that was actually unpaid. That particular trial was unpaid car tax. Right. So oh, the reason yeah. why we knew it... So people in Britain, you know, cameras pick up the images, which why they know, Greg, hey, you haven't paid... You know, here's a car you're driving and it's not got car tax. So yes, including... Personalisation makes it more effective. Including the image makes it even more effective. Um, in fact, there are myriad versions. We recently did do one, as it happens, on speeding fine, which is a really elegant one. So, um, it's kind of thing that often, if you're a minister, you'll never see these letters, right? But loads of people do, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're often written by lawyers, so they're very hard to understand. This is true certainly for speeding fines. You get this letter um, telling you you've you know, violated certain such and such. It's not even clear what you're asked to do. So first of all, you might think, well, write that in a plain language. The other thing it very rarely does, it tells you why. So it doesn't tell you why you should not speed. It just tells you you've got to pay a fine. So we did um, a trial, including a short flyer, which told you about, had a little picture, actually, again, of the sort of flowers by the side of the road, which accrue in Britain and many other countries after an accident. Um, so people immediately recognise that, what that means. And it basically explains why speeding fines are set in the way they are, why they relate to levels of accidents on a given road. Um, and it basically sort of says, you know, the reason why we're sending it is because next time there's an accident, we don't want you to be involved in it. So it tells you why. Um, what does adding this flyer do? Yes, it significantly increases the payment rate um, by people who received it. But also, really interestingly, it nearly halves the level at which you need to then subsequently prosecute. So people basically are really following through and they're complying. Um, so it's a very nice example, um, but it also illustrates it's brought in its, you know, almost inadvertently. We can show that because it was done as an experiment, and it shows us a better way of doing it than how we do it now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you touched on this a bit in your book about, um, well, there are, I think there are, there are two big questions. One is, you can see these changes in the short term, mm. and I was quite struck by the arguments about uh, I don't think it's in your book, but in a separate one about the removal of traffic furniture in certain countries, like yeah. in Holland. And suddenly, suddenly, you know, you move islands or lines on the road, and suddenly people drive more carefully because they're not quite sure what to do. But how long does that last? Once it doesn't, do new patterns not emerge? And similarly, with taxation letters or whatever else, once people get used to seeing this, 
Is it the yeah. novelty which is causing that change of behaviour, or is it uh, something longer term? Also, of course, remember that's definitely been shown to work originally in Holland 40, 50 years ago, now replicated in the UK and elsewhere. That's true, it works there. Um, whether it would work in India, whether the same rules would come, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting question. Or well, other variants. Um, I mean, what I think maybe lies behind your question is there's two elements. One is that um, there are often implicit rules about how to go on in the world, you know, about how far to stand apart from other people, etc. You're not aware of all these tacit rules that drive your behaviour until they get violated. So something like that is it, it takes away the rules and suddenly you have to look more carefully. It wakes you up in some sense. Like, what am I supposed to be doing in this situation? So it creates a disruption in your possibility to change behaviour by you know that very particular way the other the other thing um about it is um is are these effects persistent over time so this is a very frequent question people asked about well if you add into a letter saying you know most people pay their tax on time will it work this year and then year after and year after mm-hmm. um it depends is the answer if it's a very novel thing that makes an individual do something they didn't really want to do anyway so we found for example with some work on giving behavior if you um when you asked um investment bankers to give a day of their salary to charity if you included when you gave them the leaflet a little tiny tub of sweets they were two and a half times more likely to give you a day of their salary it's a very nice effect when you do it the week the year after the people who'd seen this intervention before the effect's still strong but it starts to decay away right so because it's got novelty etc um but there are other examples where it does persist um, so it tends to persist if you're establishing a new pattern, like paying taxes, is where you really want people when they first come to the tax system to pay. Um, or, as in the Wunhof examples on traffic, is that what happens is that a new set of social norms emerge. So a new behavioural equilibrium emerges, which becomes self-reinforcing. Because now everybody else is influencing your behaviour in the new pattern, you see what I mean? So you kick the system into a different equilibrium. And that's where you really normally want to get to. Uh, and the other big question I was going to ask you was about the, the ethics of this, which again you touched on in your book. And I saw um, uh, Robert Cialdini speak yeah. recently about his, his new book called Persuasion yes. and how you can, um, if you create the right context, then you can almost guarantee that people are going to behave in a certain way as a result of the context you are creating. Um, and I know that around the whole issue of, you know, just the phrase, you know, uh, li- uh, what was the phrase? Libertarian paternalism. Libertarian paternalism, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, there, there is yeah. an assumption of somebody being in charge and, you know, almost Big Brother-esque, uh, you know, gently pushing you towards certain... Yeah. Um, so I think there are some really profound issues about this, particularly when you realise this is quite powerful because we're often not aware of the influences on our behaviour. I mean, by the way, governments are dragged into this whether they want to or not because other people are influencing our behaviour all the time, particularly commercial players, you know. So a lot of our dietary issues are driven by commercial players essentially nudging us all the time. Um, you know, the, the eyes and the cartoon characters on breakfast cereal looking at your kids are influencing their behaviour and your behaviour, right? So governments get at least pulled into it in a regulatory way. Um, my, my own view is, um, A, um, all forms of knowledge can be used for good or bad, um, this is certainly true for this one as well. Um, it's really important there be a role for the public or legislators to set the parameters. That must be right. Um, it's true for you know we think the same on a on a on a law or a tax or anything. We certainly should apply it to this one too. Um, maybe even more strongly because of the subtlety sometimes of the effects. 
So that's certainly my own view. As you might know, I'm long been an advocate of sort of democratic innovations, which more strongly create a dynamic where the public kind of give us permission to do something, us in government, when shown the evidence. Mm. And I think this is definitely true for this area. And I would urge most governments starting to use these behavioural approaches at the same time to say, how strong is your mechanism to make sure the public who's in, whose behaviour you are influencing are kind of giving you permission. Mm. And that's much broader than the normal academic argument about ethical clearance, which still applies. Like, you shouldn't run a trial to try something else out if you're damn sure it's going to be more effective. You're going to run a trial when you don't know whether it'll be more effective, right? And in that sense, it's de-risking mm. an issue. By the way, that's partly the politics. So you can say to you know your minister, um, yeah, you're asking why we should run this trial, but the thing is, we're about to go national on this big thing. Before we do that, why don't we test whether it's effective? Or why don't we try five different versions and see which is the most effective? You're actually de-risking because almost for sure some of them work better than others. You'll then figure that out. And you'll figure it out on a small scale, Matthew Science type argument, yeah. rather than doing it on a big scale. So yes, try out some things. Let them fail small <laughs> before you go big and then have a, a much later failure when you realise you got it wrong. And do you get the sense that you're winning that argument with um, ministers? No, I mean, not just here, but I'm yeah. interested as to how, I, how global this is going. Well, I think so, and particularly this, the experimental bit, and so there's two elements. One is more realistic model of behaviour, but the, on the experimental bit, that's the What Works movement. And it's, I think, growing very strongly. Um, so, and, and we, by the way, have a strong interest in seeing it turn into more and more of a global good. Um, so if you can figure out the best way of teaching maths in a school in Britain, well, classrooms across the world are pretty damn similar. Why wouldn't we spread that knowledge? But also the more it becomes a kind of cross-national exercise, you're kind of you're creating this massive evidence-building machine which has wonderful positive spillover effects across the world. So it's not universal by any means. I mean, as of right now, it seems the Anglo-Saxon countries, for whatever reason, seem to be moving forward perhaps a bit faster. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, building into their letters to ministers that you should experiment and so on. The US more complicated, I think. A lot of that is happening at city level rather than at um, federal level. Um, the, it may be happening more in some other countries too, France um, particularly, and it, partly it just doesn't get translated out of French. But it is an interesting puzzle where in some countries, why aren't they doing it? I genuinely think, it's like once you've crossed the Rubicon, you think, how the hell were we not experimenting? How mm. the hell were we doing one solution on the basis that we just took a punt? Um, we just, however smart we are, we're not that smart to mm. know the best way. Um, so I think it is literally comparable to sort of the Reformation, how, you know, or how it is that Europe overtakes you know, as in 1700. How on earth did Europe ever catch up with, let alone overtake China and India? And it's partly because it marries this kind of intellectual curiosity to try and figure out all the things that it doesn't know about the world, mm. a scientific revolution. Albeit belatedly, 300 years later, we're now finally doing that in relation to public service and government. You know? And do you think that it is that fundamental shift in the way that politics is done? Given the you know, the forces which are blowing through politics in the, certainly in the Western world at the moment, the, the different expectations of politicians, of policymakers, of, of delivery, this, is this a fundamental, that fundamental issue? I think it's, it is really fundamental. It's certainly fundamental in relation to the professions, so you're creating 
evidence-based professions in the same way we expect medics to be evidence-based when they recommend a treatment why wouldn't they expect the same for our teachers or our social workers or our police or our judges right so it's certainly at that level and that's where a lot of the focus has been um does it therefore have implications for um for political level it, it does although i do think that ultimately it's they're not quite the same thing you know so one is a sort of technocratic exercise to work out how to optimize yeah. it's entirely appropriate that there'd be a political process which says what is it you are trying to optimize um so those things aren't, you know, you don't replace one with the other. And it's entirely appropriate sometimes for ministers to say, we don't want to go that route. This is what our objectives are. But once you've worked out what you're trying to achieve, you would surely want to use these kinds of approaches to figure out well, what's the best way of doing that, mm. what works to achieve that. But it's someone else to set what is the objective or society. Do you get resistance from the professions as well to, to that greater analysis of... I guess what they're doing, if, if, if the elements of it feel sort of almost or- Orwellian, um, uh, in terms of that monitoring well, and... There's two bits to it. So as I said, I would separate a bit the behavioural from the experimental. So just dealing with the experimental, um, yes, there's resistance. Remember, there was resistance in healthcare. If you look at Archie Cochrane's arguments in the 1970s, there was enormous resistance inside the medical establishment for more empirical methods. It's hard to believe now when we look back on it, except when you then look at the other professions and you say, well, why does no one ever do a randomised controlled trial in relation to child protection? You know, or, or why until five years ago in Britain in education, it was maybe once a decade a really good quality empirical study in terms of an RCT or something like it. Since you know 2011, last five years, the our What Works Centre on Education, the Educational Endowment Fund, has run 127 large-scale randomised controlled trials in British schools involving more than 7,000 schools and nearly a million kids. That's the last five years. I mean, that's a complete game-changer. Still, is there resistance? Yes, there's resistance. There's all kinds of resistance. But the most fundamental one is actually more in the spirit of a paradigm. People literally just don't think about the world in terms of experimenting, testing because they presume that the way we've done it already must be right. Or what could we be yeah. doing that for 100 years, right? That's a big leap to suddenly say, geez, you know, maybe all the stuff we've been doing my whole career might not be the most effective way of doing it. That's a, that's a tough gig mm-hmm. to go across. On the behavioural, the objection is rather different, which is that, you know, to what extent is it, you know, somehow you're getting in people's heads, is that different in some way? I think ultimately um, what we're seeing is that it's not really about the method generally, it's about what, what are you using it for. So certainly um, Cass Sunstein has been very interested in this and um, looking in the US, um, people's objections turn out more to be what you're using it for rather than the method itself. Um, but we're right to be a bit worried about it and it's a powerful tool and it's important that there be appropriate checks and balances mm. about the use of these approaches. Are you constantly surprised by things? That you're finding. I was quite in your book. You use the example of uh, the motorcycle helmet law being introduced in Ireland, and the byproduct of that being a dramatic decrease in the number of uh, motorcycles that were being stolen because criminals don't carry helmets around with them. Yes, that's right. In fact, some of the best demonstrations came from actually Germany, um, Texas, etc. It's seen in a number of countries. So when helmets were introduced, albeit for reasons of safety, it led to typically 30% plus reductions in the theft rate of motorcycles. 
and, and people weren't stealing other things for the most part. Are, are those sorts um, of things turning up on a regular basis? Fairly regularly. Um, I mean, equally, things that didn't work are also very, very striking. Um, so famous examples in which, like, scared straight, taking young people to prisons, thinking it'll scare them straight. It doesn't. It makes them more likely to offend. Um, in education, if we take that as an example from the work of the Educational Endowment Fund, lots of things which many politicians have been very keen on, like school uniforms or teaching assistants or repeating a year, turn out to be very ineffective, certainly very cost ineffective, as opposed to teaching kids an hour of philosophy a week improves their reading, writing and maths at age 11 by the equivalent of an extra term of schooling for disadvantaged kids. Like you just don't know that sitting in an armchair. In the behavioural insights team, we have these kind of examples all the time. And when we ourselves sometimes have surprises where either it can be an effect is stunningly big. So we did an intervention, for example, on police recruitment, where adding one line, basically, just changing the tone of the wording before the person did the online exam um, essentially eliminates a difference, a huge difference between ethnic minority applicant success rates, um, which is 40% versus 60% for the white population. Just changing the language before they do the test eliminates that difference, brings the ethnic minority to the same level, from 40 to a 60% pass rate. So you see that kind of thing, you say, oh my God, it's absolutely stunning. Um, sometimes, of course, we also see examples of things which didn't work, which are also uh, interesting. Um, and by the way, that can include when we test sometimes as a control group, for example, in tax, there was a Polish study recently. Um, not only did we show that the rewritten letter was much, much more effective, we were able to show it. If anything, the existing letter that their tax authority sent out made people less likely to pay their tax than if they hadn't sent anything at all. So, um, yeah, it's full of these interesting surprises. Sometimes they're little, um, but sometimes they're quite big. Um, and, and also in relation to how some of these small changes can have huge impacts compared to sometimes quite small impacts of big fiscal instruments. So to go back to the kind of classic example now on pensions... Changing the default from an um, opt-in to an opt-out in, on both sides of the Atlantic has been found to produce more than 90% of people carrying on to save. So in Britain alone since 2012, about 6.5 million extra people saving for pensions. In contrast, the conventional instrument, which is a tax subsidy, which we spend literally tens of billions a year even now, our best estimate is for every pound or every dollar that you spend, you get just one cent one penny of extra savings so you know when you juxtapose that the effectiveness of changing the default the friction the extra hassle in terms of filling out a form incredibly powerful incredibly cheap versus a tax subsidy incredibly expensive and incredibly ineffective in this case so when you see that it lays bare why it is that policymakers even if they start skeptical pretty rapidly in governments across the world think, geez, this is something we should know about. Mm. So what's next? How big, how, how big does this get? Well, so, and I hope it gets very big on both fronts. So on the behavioural side, certainly where we are in Britain, and we've been doing this you know, since 2010, I think we're moving pretty decisively from the relatively simple examples, or what's the better way of asking people politely to pay their tax, etc., um, or getting people back to work faster, into more and more the so-called wicked issues. So public health issues, obesity, reducing corruption, boosting economic growth. Um, wicked wicked out, issues being ones which have which sort of looked intractable to a Exactly, look like years. they're complicated, intractable, etc., etc. No one even believes it's possible to do something. 
Um, you know, nearly all policy issues concern human behaviour. If those policies are built, built on rather dodgy assumptions, it turns out introducing better assumptions, more empirical methods, look like time and time again they are opening up new solutions, new way forward, which is extraordinarily exciting. Social mobility would be another one, right? A lot of people, frankly, don't believe you can do anything about people stuck at the bottom. We're much, much more optimistic on the basis of the evidence flowing through. Um, even if you didn't care about the behavioural bit, I think, I hope, that the rise of these sort of what works centres, I think of it as a what works movement, really, um, is extraordinarily powerful. It's not inevitable it would spread across the world, but it looks like it is going to do so. In the same way that it did in healthcare, um, well, why wouldn't it for all the other mm. you know, great professions? And um, we are certainly in the UK very open to working with other governments who have shared sets of questions. And most are asking, how can you educate your kids better? How can you reduce crime more effectively? How can you spend your resources to boost local and national growth faster? And these are all kind of empirical questions, which historically we've had very poor answers to. So why don't we set about a sustained effort to answer those questions in the same way that we did in relation to healthcare 40, 50 years ago? And um, I think it's very, very exciting and promising. And when you, you do apply more empirical approaches, yes, you're going to find some of your precious ideas turn out to be wrong. On the other hand, you're going to find out all kinds of more effective approaches. I think it's incredibly uh, exciting. And so I, I actually think, I, I really believe our kids will look back and say, what the hell were you doing before? You had these weird made-up theories about human behaviour and then you were taking a punt on things like, without ever testing it, you know. It's going to look very strange indeed. Um, anyway, perhaps I'm naive, but that's, that's what I think. <laughs> um, well, it's a good place to finish. Um, thank you ever so much. Good, good luck with it. Ooh. Cheers, mate. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back in about two weeks' time with Andrew Feinstein as our next interviewee. Andrew is a former ANC, African National Congress MP from South Africa, and he talks about his experience of being a politician in post-apartheid South Africa and working directly with Nelson Mandela. But also what makes the story particularly interesting is that he was thrown out of the ANC for pursuing corruption inside the ANC when he was a, a, an MP and a member of the Public Accounts Committee. He has since devoted almost all of his efforts towards tackling corruption and exposing some of the corruption, particularly in the global arms trade. It is a very, very interesting interview and I hope you can join us then. Until then, bye for now. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online.